compulsive overconsumption, mild addiction, to very severe life-threatening addiction. We're all somewhere on that spectrum, and increasingly more and more of us are struggling, struggling with these kinds of minor addictions, where now we need to use our drug of choice not to feel good, but just to restore a level balance. When we're not using, we're experiencing universal symptoms of withdrawal, which is anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving. And I think really all of us today can to some extent relate to this, even just with our smartphones. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, I am so honored about today's episode. From the second I heard Dr. Limke on Joe Rogan and then again on Rich Roll, I knew I had, had, had to book her if at all possible. I've been really wanting to do an episode on addiction and Dr. Limke is honestly one of the go-to figures when it comes to understanding the science of what all is happening with that. Her book, Dopamine Nation, was so fascinating and it was a really fun read. She made it very personable. It wasn't dry at all. It really gave you a scientific look at the brain and really good examples of how that manifests in real life. In particular, I was really excited to talk to her about what I perceive as my own addiction, which is work addiction. So it was really nice to analyze that and learn about what actually is an addiction. I can't wait to hear what you guys think of today's episode. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash dopamine. Those show notes will have a full transcript transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, Melanie Avalon. Also find the announcement post there. And again, enter to win something that I love. And you'd be really surprised. A lot of people don't really enter on that Instagram. And I am usually giving away full-size beauty counter products. So if you want one of those, go enter now. It is so, so easy. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. 
So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on 
on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so, so excited about the conversation that I am about to have. A little backstory about today's show. So, I heard Dr. Anna Limpke. I mean, she's made all the podcasts around. She's been on all the shows. And I was listening to her interviews for her new book, Dopamine Nation. And I knew that I had to read the book ASAP and, if possible, had to get her on this show because I am very much fascinated by the brain and by addiction and in particular the concept of dopamine like i've <laughs> i've always said that i'm um and this is a very casual understanding of it but i've always thought that i have an addictive personality and i've always said that dopamine is is my thing and that i could never really touch drugs or anything like that because that would just not go well so i've always had just an awareness of how i think my brain works with dopamine, but then reading Dopamine Nation was just so eye-opening, so enlightening. I really, really learned about the science of what all was going on. And then on top of that, Dr. Lemke is an amazing writer and she shares a lot of personal stories as well from her work. So it's a really, really engaging read. I just have so many questions. So Dr. Lemke, thank you so much for being here. 
Oh my goodness, my pleasure, and thank you for that lovely introduction. So listeners might be familiar with you from your books or from podcast interviews and things like that, but for those who are not familiar, I will just let them know that you received your undergrad in humanities from Yale and your medical degree from Stanford, and you are professor and medical director of addiction medicine at Stanford. You're also the program director of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship, chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic and a diplomat of both the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, and I'm sure a lot more other things, but um, those are quite the credentials. But to start things off, so like I said, your book is just so engaging. The first note I had, because I have like 30 pages of notes, but the first note I have is she is a really good writer. Um, <laughs> you're really good. So engaging telling the stories of your patients and what you've learned from them and you know the epiphanies that you've had. So I was wondering if to start things off, you could tell listeners a little bit about your personal story and what made you so interested in your work on medications and addiction and things like that and your work with your patients and just why are you doing what you're doing today? Maybe the best place for me to start is just to take a moment for me to express gratitude to my patients, many of whom I interviewed for this book and who were willing to share their stories with a pseudonym in the book. It was their courageous honesty that really made the book possible, and I'm very grateful to them and I'm really hopeful that the, the stories really bring to life the concepts for readers. I guess you know, thinking about why I wrote the book or how I got to this place that I wanted to write the book is that a number of different things. I mean, I've been practicing psychiatry for more than two decades, and I've learned so much from my patients who I hold up as modern-day prophets for the rest of us and how to live in this reward-saturated world. And I also believe that narrative and story is fundamental to organizing our lives and shaping our experience and also teaching us. So I wanted to communicate the neuroscience plus these true individual stories of my patients to express certain ideas that I've evolved over two decades of practicing psychiatry about how to achieve the good life in a world that's you know constantly tempting us to engage in titillating ourselves or the pursuit of pleasure for its own sake. I should say, too, that I opened the book with the story of a patient of mine with a sex addiction, um, and I did that because I thought his story exemplified very specifically the ways in which technology and the communications revolution wrought by the internet has made it so much harder to manage consumption and essentially turned us all into some form of, of addict but also because I wanted to draw parallels between his story and my own addiction to romance novels, which I do talk about in the book, you know, which was a, a much more minor kind of addiction compared to his addiction or that of many um, of my patients. But I think still illustrates, again, the ways in which so much in our world is now drugified and our increased access has made us all more vulnerable to this problem of addiction. Yeah, I really, really appreciated that approach that you took. So for listeners, the patient that Dr. Lemke talks about with the sex addiction, it's to the level of he concocted an entire masturbation machine, which I think, you know, people looking at that from the outside would 
clearly probably say, oh, yes, he's addicted to sex or masturbation. But then you tell your story about being addicted to romance novels and you talk about Twilight. And I think it's really easy for people to look at that situation, I think, and say, oh, well, that's not addiction. You just like romance novels. So a question from that, how similar are those two situations? Like, what is addiction and what determines when something becomes addiction versus just being something that you really, really like that is socially acceptable? Right. So, you know, broadly speaking, addiction is defined as the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. Addiction occurs on a continuum. So everything from sort of compulsive overconsumption, mild addiction to very severe life-threatening addiction. We're all somewhere on that spectrum. And increasingly, more and more of us are struggling, struggling with these kinds of minor, minor addictions. Again, as so many things have become drugified and our access has become, you know, almost infinite, especially with the advent of the smartphone. When I use the word addiction, I'm I'm talking about a maladaptive form of coping. I'm not talking about something that's like a passion or, uh, you know, something that people are just spending a lot of time doing, trying to achieve one thing or another. Now, almost anything can sort of cross over into addiction. And, and the way that it's broadly defined as, again, harm to self and or others. The way that it's specifically devi- defined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders is captured by the four C's, control, compulsion, craving, and consequences, along with the physiologic signs of tolerance and dependence. So just to briefly summarize, control refers to out-of-control use, compulsion refers to a level of automaticity outside of conscious awareness, Craving refers to both the mental and physiologic onset of an intense urge to use despite the plan not to use. And then consequence has to do with all of the various consequences from, you know, subtle consequences of just not being fully present to, you know, significant life-threatening consequences, including, you know, jail, loss of serious relationships, loss of jobs, health consequences. And then there are the physiologic uh, signals of adaptation, tolerance, needing more and more over time to get the same effect, and then dependence and withdrawal manifestations, physiologic manifestations of the absence of the drug. A lot of times people are familiar with like the a very significant physical symptoms of withdrawal that you might get from stopping smoking or stopping opioids or stopping alcohol. But every drug and behavior that's addictive has universal psychological symptoms of withdrawal that people really underestimate. And those include anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. Okay, so I'm just I'm looking at those different criteria and I'm just wondering like for me for example, I think if I had an addiction it would be probably workaholism. So just thinking about that for example, is the difference really the consequences because I feel like like the way I engage with work for example could be seen as addictive. I do have compulsion, I do have craving. If I didn't do it, the consequences might be that I have, you know, anxiety or like feel the need to do it. But because it's so accepted in society and because it seems to benefit my life, I, I keep 
doing it. So like, like, does that qualify as an addiction or not? Because it doesn't have consequences. Right. So, so very important point. First of all, let me just say those four C's plus tolerance dependence, that that's not a checklist. It's not like you have to meet all of those to meet criteria for addiction. It's, it's basically a kind of a mix and match. And the more criteria you meet, the more addicted you are through mild, moderate, and severe. And maybe just one or two of those criteria would might, might put you in the, the mild range. So that's, that's important first thing. That I, that I want to say, but you're, you're making a very good point, which I think can be captured by this concept of addiction and really all mental health disorders being biopsychosocial diseases. There's a biological com- component, a psychological comp- component, and there's a social slash environmental component. And on that social environmental piece of it, that really speaks to the way in which addiction is in many ways defined not just by its biological factors, but by the way that it interacts with whatever the culture is at that time. And there's no doubt that in our current, you know, culture, uh, modern Western capitalist culture, there are certain types of behaviors that really meet almost all of the other criteria for addiction, but which we don't call addiction because they're so socially validated and reinforced. And that certainly would include kind of a workaholism and the ways in which, you know, this sort of obsessive, compulsive, 24-7 preoccupation with work and achievement and money is something that we actually use to define our heroes and not people who are ill. And yet I think through another lens, you know, it's, it's very credible and even useful to say, wait a minute, you know, are we individually and collectively you know, addicted to the behaviors surrounding work? And is it ultimately actually contributing to, to our unhappiness? Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come... 
definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I'm glad you said that about the unhappiness because my extension question of that was, does it matter like the awareness or the perception that you have when you quote, achieve whatever you're achieving. And I don't necessarily mean just achievements. Like, I mean, as well, being addicted to a drug, for example. And to clarify further, so you talk about in the book of how dopamine is, you know, the difference between wanting versus actually getting the thing. And so does it matter how fulfilled you feel when you get the thing that you're going for, even if you turn around and go for it again. So like a drug addict having a drug and wanting it, you know, that wanting, then they get the drug and then presumably they, they just, you know, do it again. Compared to me with the workaholism, I strive for these things that I want to do with my work and then I get them. That feels really good. And I don't feel unhappy from that. And then I just go for something else. Does your perception of getting what you wanted matter. Uh-huh. Right. So so good good question, interesting question. Perception is a tricky thing, but I would say in general the phenomenon of being addicted to something is characterized by the law of diminishing returns, which is to say that that thing that we seek out and get is extremely pleasurable or rewarding or motivating to us the first time. Um, and then we want, then we naturally work, work very hard to try to recreate that experience because that's how we've been wired over millions of years of evolution, which is to approach pleasure and avoid pain. It's what's kept us alive and, and procreating. But what happens with addiction generally is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar reward, it becomes less rewarding over time. A couple hypotheses in your case, it could be that that you are just in this lucky category of your drug, um, your rewards not yet reaching that po- point of diminishing returns, which is to say that eventually you will get there. <laughs> or it could just be that somehow you've unlocked the secret to a type of reward that is rewarding and meaningful to you in a way that doesn't trigger uh, this vicious cycle of compulsive overconsumption. Also, just going back to what you said originally about this wanting versus liking, we know that dopamine is released when we do something that's pleasurable. It is also fundamental to this process of motivation, which is slightly different from pleasure. Motivation is the amount of effort we're willing to extend to get that reward. And what what we've learned through neuroscience and also our, our own natural experiments in our lives is that uh, dopamine is, is integral not just to the experience of pleasure, but to the, the motivation to seek it out. One of the ways that scientists have shown this is they engineered a rodent to have no dopamine essentially no no dopamine transmission. And what they learned was that if they put food in that animal's mouth, it would chew the food and seem to get pleasure from the food, swallow the food. But if they put the food a mere body length away, the animal would die of starvation, not having enough motivation to get up and move that small distance to get the food. 
So this idea that, that dopamine is important, not just to the experience of pleasure and reward, but also to, to the motivation to get the reward. And the way that that plays out is very interesting because it's essentially the dopamine deficit state that follows on the heels of reward that drives you know, the incentive to seek it out again. That is so fascinating. I remember you talking about that experiment with the rats and that just blew my mind. So what is the baseline state of human being? Like we keep talking about pain and pleasure and wanting and liking and getting things. What is baseline? Is it no pain or no pleasure? Or is it like 50-50 pain, you know, 50 pain, 50 pleasure? Like when an um, organism is born, what makes them even want something if they haven't had anything to know that they want it? To understand this, I, I think it's important to understand that we have learned in the past 75 years that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain, which means that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain. And in my book, I describe the way that pleasure and pain interrelate with each other by using the extended metaphor of a balance, which I think just makes it more understandable. So imagine that in that part of your brain called the reward pathway, which is a very old and conserved part of the brain, similar across species and through millions of years of evolution, there is a balance like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground or a board carefully balanced on a fulcrum. And at our resting state, that that board on the fulcrum is level with the ground. It's, it's not tipped to one side or the other. And that balance represents how we process pleasure and pain because they work like opposite sides of the balance of a balance. When we, when we experience something pleasurable, the balance tips one way. And when we experience something painful, the balance tips in the opposite direction. Now there are three rules governing this balance. The first is that the balance wants to remain level and that our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance with any deviation from neutrality. And the way that the brain restores a level balance is by tipping the balance an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So if I do something that's pleasurable, then I get a little release of dopamine, my balance tips to the side of pleasure, but in response, my brain adapts to that pleasure by tipping my balance an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain, before going level again. So that means that every pleasure has a cost. The second important rule governing that balance is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar stimulus, that initial response to get to pleasure gets weaker and shorter, but that after effect to the side of pain gets stronger and longer. And one of the ways that I imagine this is that there are these neuroadaptation gremlins that hop on the pain side of the balance in response to any pleasurable stimulus but they like it on the bounce, so they stay on until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down, the hangover, the after effect before hopping off and restoring a level balance. But if we continue to bombard our pleasure side with highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, then we end up with more and more gremlins on the pain side of the balance until they're, we've got like a whole village and they're camped out with their tents and barbecues in tow. That is addiction, right? That, that, that is when we've entered that vortex of compulsive overconsumption where now we need to use our drug of choice not to feel good, but just to restore a level balance. And when we're not using, we're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which is anxiety, irritability, insomnia, 
dysphoria and craving. And I think really all of us today can to some extent relate to this, even just with our smartphones. Uh, this is when we get a text, it's reinforcing, it makes us feel good, a little bit of dope, blip, blip of dopamine, that we put it away and say to ourselves, now I'm going to focus on this other task. And yet there remains in our minds this burning compulsion to want to check it again and again and again. And that really suggests that now we've got gremlins hopping up and down on the pain side of balance that are compelling us to do the work to you know, restore, essentially restore homeostasis. Because remember, the, the driving biological principle is that the, the, the balance wants to be level. The final rule governing this balance is that the balance remembers. It has a very keen memory for those initial stimuli that either produce pleasure or produce pain. But we are almost amnestic for the gremlins. That is, we don't remember the come down. Likewise, on the pain side, you know, I know that when I exercise, those gremlins will hop on the pleasure side and give me dopamine through this process called hormesis or upregulation of my own dopamine. And yet I'm incredibly amnestic about, about that 24 hours later when I get up and I think I don't want to exercise. Even though I, I should remember how good I felt afterwards, all I remember is the pain. Likewise, all we remember about the good stuff is the euphoric re recall of how we felt, but we don't remember all the bad stuff that came afterwards. It's so fascinating. And I've been um, really realizing it in myself this past week because I told you just before recording, I got COVID last week. So I lost my sense of taste a few days ago. So I follow intermittent fasting protocol and I eat pretty much a very similar meal every single night. And so it's been fascinating to watch myself eat because I can't taste the food at all, like at all. But I still want to eat like the same amount that I always do, I'm still enjoying the process. So I've been watching myself engage with that. I'm not getting any pleasure from the food, like zero pleasure. And yet I still watch myself wanting to keep eating. And that has really made me realize, wow, like if, I mean, if I'm having this response to this, I can't even imagine getting off of, you know, hard drugs where you're still getting the pleasure from it. We all have a sort of a baseline tonic level of dopamine firing, and that's a signal to us that allows us to know, you know, what to approach and, and what to avoid. Um, and again, if it's something reinforcing, then that we get more dopamine, it goes above that baseline level. We tip our balance to the side of pleasure. So when you are eating without being able to taste, what's absent for you is the dopamine release that comes from eating that food. But what is still present for you is the response to your hunger, right? So uh, hun hunger is one of the ways that we our balance tips to the side of pain spontaneously um, as part of our survival mechanism, right? I'm hungry. My hunger is now motivating me to do the work to get some food, both because it's pleasurable, but also because it, it allows me to restore homeostasis. So, so just we just wanted to put that out there in terms of kind of the parallel things that might have been going on. I'm really glad you said that. And I was actually thinking about that. I have been thinking about it while eating at night. I've been thinking, you know, is this getting rid of my hunger? And so that's why I'm doing it. Or is it like, am I just addicted to this ritual of eating? Right. So that's a very good point too, that we do develop all these rituals around, you know, these reinforcing substances and behaviors, and they become part and parcel of the experience as well you know, where I remember I had this fascinating case of a young man in China who was addicted to heroin and his parents paid for him to have the addiction surgery. Now he had no idea 
what the addiction surgery was, but essentially they put in a naltrexone implant. Naltrexone is an opioid receptor blocker, which meant that for the next six months, he would not be able to feel anything from injecting heroin. But he just continued to inject on a daily basis, partially because he didn't even, he thought that somehow magically, you know, it would take away, I don't know, the whole ritual around it as well as the craving. And it didn't actually do that, even though it was effectively giving him no reinforcing effects to take the heroin. But it was just part of his sort of ritualistic routine, which just speaks to the level at which, you know, addiction is this sort of innate reflexive response to wanting to restore homeostasis once we're in withdrawal. But it is also all of these other sort of meta narratives and behaviors that that surround, you know, that deeply ingrained behavior that goes along with the reinforcing effects. Like when I've been eating, I was literally thinking about naltrexone and I was thinking if I had an addiction that could be treated by that, would I have the same response that I'm having with the food where it, it doesn't even matter that it takes away the the reward because I'm just so ingrained in the, the ritual of all of it. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing too, is that hypothetically, if you permanently lost, you know, your ability to taste from COVID, theoretically, that would eventually extinguish your craving for foods that taste good. And you would get to a point where you would just basically eat for the sake of fuel. That would, of course, be horrible. But, you know, we, that's what we see in, in animal studies. So, for example, if you train a rat to press a lever to get cocaine immediately delivered to its bloodstream, you know, the rat will essentially press that lever until it, it exhausts itself and can't move or until it dies. But if you then stop delivering cocaine through or whatever the drug is through that mechanism of the lever press, eventually that behavior will extinguish and uh, the animal will no longer work to press the lever because the drug's no more, no longer forthcoming. Although interestingly, if you then expose that, expose that animal to a significant stressor, like a very painful foot shock, it will then reflexively run to the lever and start pressing it again as a way to kind of, you know, create access to that reinforcing drug, which does speak to, you know, one of the many risk factors for drug relapse, which is an acute stressor. Is addiction only really possible in a society or a situation or an environment where you do have access to these either hyperpalatable or, you know, these rewards that we wouldn't be able to get in nature? Like, when did addiction start? Uh Yeah, great question. So, I mean, I think since the beginning of you know, recorded time. There have been accounts of individuals who could not use various intoxicants in moderation. And you can go very, very far back, thousands of years to find these accounts. So as long as there has been the discovery of intoxicants in nature, whether, you know, from grain alcohol or from, uh, you know, opium from the poppy plant or coca leaves, there, there have been individuals vulnerable to the problem of addiction. And yet, ma- the majority of individuals have been able to use these substances in moderation. And that's still true today. So about 10, there's about a f- 10 to 15% lifetime pre- prevalence for alcohol and drug addiction. In terms of behavioral addictions like pornography, gambling, you know, video games, we, we don't have as good numbers, but it would probably be something, you know, in that range. 
What's different today is that we have so much more access to a much broader variety of even more potent drugs that we've all become more vulnerable to the problem of addiction, which means that addiction rates are going up, including in demographic groups that were previously less vulnerable to the problem, like older people and women. And likewise, we have many, many more people struggling with minor compulsive overconsumption and mild forms of addiction, um, like the one that I describe happened to me with romance novels. Now, other people might not have conceptualized that, my experience through the lens of addiction, and, and it's partially the work that I do that led me to look at it through that lens. But I think it's a really useful lens for conceptualizing addiction really as very much a spectrum disorder and, and this idea that we're all potentially vulnerable given enough access to uh, potent and reinforcing drugs. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash Danger Coffee. 
and use the coupon code MelanieAvalon to get 10% off. Again, that is MelanieAvalon.com slash DangerCoffee with the coupon code MelanieAvalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Yeah, for listeners, you've got to get Dopamine Nation and read all of Dr. Limke's story about the the romance novels and all of that. I, I just thought it was really, really eye-opening. I have a super random question. You talk about in the book the level of dopamine that is, well, I guess it's not released. It's encouraged to be released or released. You talk about the dopamine levels of different substances, so morphine or ephedrine or meth, but you also mention orgasms, for example. Is the orgasm feeling, is that literally dopamine or some other neurotransmitter? Yeah, it's not just dopamine. And let me just say that dopamine is not the only neurotransmitter involved in pleasure, reward, motivation, but it is the final common pathway for all addictive substances and behaviors. So an orgasm is characterized by a flooding of our brains in that moment by dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, all kinds of, you know, endogenous feel-good hormones, um, which makes, you know, sex addiction and pornography addiction really difficult, frankly, to overcome because you don't have to go out to the store and get it. All you need is, you know, your own body and, and your imagination. And, and sex addiction, you know, is, is, is a real, true and real thing and a potentially life-threatening and certainly devastating for people with the more severe forms and on the rise, um, you know, with our 24-7 access to these digital images, increasingly graphic digital images, as well as people themselves on the other end. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an addiction that's really taken hold, and I'm seeing more and more patients coming in with devastating consequences of sex addiction. Do we know why certain people get addicted to certain things and not others? Like, why can one person experience an orgasm and not get addicted to sex, but another person does? Yeah, so interesting. Like this inter-individual variability, this concept of drug of choice, that what tilts your balance to the side of pleasure may not tilt mine and vice versa. And you know what? We don't have very much information. One of the things I did in writing this book was kind of went looking for that and couldn't find very much talk to the leading neuroscientists. And interestingly, there, there isn't a lot of knowledge on this. I speculate that from an evolutionary perspective, there's a good argument for making sure that within the tribe, people like different things, like a priori are just attracted to different things, which is to say, if everybody, you know, were looking for like the red berry, then we would have too many red berries and not enough, you know, let's say grain or water or, you know, other people to potentially increase our our mating potential. So I think that mother nature has sort of covered this by making sure that you know, people are different in this regard and are attracted to different things and working for different kinds of rewards. So that at the end of the day, the tribe as a whole has what it needs. I was thinking that maybe it was something societal where 
what you just said, <laughs> that people needed to to do different things in order to keep the society going. Kind of like how people people are different sleep chronotypes because to function as a society, we needed to have people alert at different times of the day. Oh, that's interesting. I've not heard that before, but that that makes sense. Yeah. I think about it with like songs, for example. Like why do certain people become so obsessed with certain songs and other people don't? So sometimes like you first hear a song and you could care less about it, but then you keep hearing it and then it grows on you, but then you get tired of it. Like it's the same arc. So what role does repetitive exposure play in addiction, even if you don't initially like it? Well, if that thing is inherently addictive, then, you know, your brain will cycle through the very same phenomenon as if, you know, you had originally liked that thing, which is to say with repeated exposure, that initial pleasurable response or just that initial response, even if not all that pleasurable gets weaker and shorter, but the after response that come down stronger and longer. And now you really want that thing, not really to experience pleasure, but just sort of to restore homeostasis. So obviously I'm I'm making a big inference and that's hypothetical. But I think another analogy is if you think about the use of opioids in the treatment of pain. So people who can get addicted to opioids prescribed by their doctor for pain. And what they will tell you, which I'm sure is true, is that when they first took the opioid, it did not give them any kind of sense of euphoria. It just relieved them from from pain temporarily. But it doesn't really matter that euphoria wasn't present. You can still get addicted just because it relieved some kind of pain. So it doesn't, that, that balance, it doesn't really, if it, even if it starts out tipped to the side of pain, that process of neuroadaptation and gremlins compensating, you know, on the after effect and changing the set point, that, that still occurs. So, I mean, I could speculate that that's what's, what's going on there with the song that is. Maybe before we discuss about the, the way out of this, short of treating, this is sort of esoteric, but do you think our bodies, our brains will ever evolve to adapt to a society of plenty where we don't get addicted? Or will those who get addicted kind of just get weeded out by their own addictions so we wouldn't adapt to it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we we have to adapt because we are literally titillating ourselves to death. 70% of global deaths are attributable to diseases caused by modifiable risk factors like smoking, like overeating, like inactivity. We're also dying of you know drug and alcohol addiction at higher numbers than ever before. You know the opioid epidemic is sort of the the most visible and, and tragic example of that. So it's very clear that we we need to figure this out. Rates of depression, anxiety, suicide are going up alarmingly and are highest in rich nations compared to poorer ones. And as you know, I, I hypothesize that that's because we're getting too much dopamine. So I, I really think we do need to figure this out. It's of some urgency. I think it's going to take you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years. But I, I, I am optimistic that we will eventually get there. You know, it's going to take um, on an individual level doing the things that I talk about in my book, which is intentionally abstaining from certain forms of pleasure and intentionally seeking out, you know, psychologically and physically 
difficult or painful things to try to reset our, our pleasure set point. I also believe that we need a top-down effort. So collectively, you know, our schools, our governments, our corporations need to help us in this endeavor. It can't be expected that we will just have to use our own, you know, individual willpower and know how to try to avoid these temptations. I think collectively we have to have a top-down approach as well that, that helps us do that. To clarify, do you think it's possible that our actual brains could evolve to adapt to a higher dopamine-rich environment where we don't get the withdrawal or the, the negative side effects? Or is it going to be behavioral changes that we have to make? So that, ref, you know, that reflexive pleasure-pain balance that I've been talking about, that's been conserved across millions of years of evolution, has endured across species. I don't think that is going to change. But what can and, and likely will change is the gray matter areas that interact and communicate actively with that pleasure-pain balance to optimize our ability to, you know, regulate it and interfere with, you know, the, the reflexive nature of it. Okay, gotcha. So do some people, when they find themselves addicted, like can everybody recover or are some people destined to be addicted for the rest of their life? Because of changes in the brain. Well, I mean, yeah. So, so just like other mental illnesses, addiction is a biopsychosocial disease. People can and do recover, and I do hold up people in recovery from severe addiction as modern day prophets for the rest of us. You know, it's very possible to recover, but as with any disease, whether it's addiction or it's cancer or it's depression, you know, some people with very severe forms will die of their disease, and and they will not. They will not ultimately be able to, you know, get well. And of course, that's a, a, a terrible tragedy. But I think most people, especially those with mild to moderate forms, will be able to achieve recovery. Now, we do think of addiction as a chronic relapsing and remitting disease. So it's not like, you know, you're cured and you never have the problem again. You know, it's an ongoing dynamic state, the state of being in recovery. But I would say that you know, we're all in recovery from life. And when I think about this pleasure pain balance, I really think about it as, as not on a triangular fulcrum, but really on a ball, like a a beam on a ball, like you might imagine in a circus, where in order to stay balanced on that beam on that ball, we're constantly having to uh, maneuver and, 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 you know, shift our footwork and, and make adjustments in order to stay in balance and and people with addiction in recovery have to do that. And the rest of us have to do that too, right? Every day, you know, it's kind of, okay, I have to adjust here. I have to, I have to adjust there. And that's because the world is constantly, you know, changing to continue to try to draw us in. The example that I use in the book is the idea of a, a gluten-free diet. So, you know, people with celiac disease can't have gluten, which means that they can't have things with flour in them which means that in general, historically, they haven't been able to have a lot of the kinds of cakes and sweets and snack foods that other people can have. So in recent decades, a lot of people adopted the gluten diet, not because they have celiac disease, but because it became a good way to restrict certain categories of foods. Well, what did the gluten industry do? It immediately started to make all kinds of gluten-free cakes and cookies. So, you know, then all of a sudden being gluten-free didn't confer that kind of advantage as a restrictive category. The same thing happens with drugs all the time, like, you know, nicotine and cannabis are now available in 
so-called medicinal forms. So, you know, just as soon as you figure out how to stop using a certain drug, it, it sort of represents itself in a new packaging that says, hey, I'm good for you now. I did want to ask you about that because people will often say like CBD for cannabis, for example, is quote, not addictive. Why do they say that? And is that true? Uh-huh. So, so there are more than 400 active ingredients in cannabis. The ones that we're most familiar, familiar with are THC and CBD. THC binds CB1 receptors and is addictive. CBD binds CB2 receptors and is not addictive. So it's really true that CBD is not addictive. The problem is that it's actually very hard to get pure CBD. So a lot of these so-called pure CBD products, which are not well-regulated, actually have THC in them and or people are intentionally using a, a, a tincture that combines both of those things. And THC it is highly addictive. So that, that's the complexity there. It's a, it is true that CBD is, is not addictive. It's really hard to know if you're just getting CBD. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved a natural full-spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today, we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside, and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full-spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths, and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought... It was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about 
that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Even if it's not addictive as a literal compound in your brain, can anything in theory become addictive if we perceive it as something addictive, like a habit? So yeah, so habit versus addiction. So so habit, you know, describes a behavior that we do that is outside of conscious awareness, right? That we can start doing that thing without even really realizing that we're doing it, whether it's biting our nails, picking our nose, sucking our thumb, whatever it is. And in many ways, habits are really useful because it's a very an energy efficient way of engaging in motor activities without the cognitive load of having to think about doing it. Like, you know, tying my shoes is a habit. I don't, I no longer have to think about, you know, making the bunny ears and having the bunny go up and up into the, down the hole or whatever. But so, so habit in and of itself, you know, is, is not a bad thing, although we can have bad habits. Addiction sort of encompasses habit and yet is, is more than that. So there's certainly a level of automaticity in, in most of our addictions where we start doing the thing before we even realize that we're doing it. But addiction is beyond habit and it's negative, almost always negative. I, I think of addiction, you know, as conceptually as a, again, a maladaptive form of coping that encompasses habit. So I think there's CBD is kind of a tough example because, you know, the, the science to date suggests that it actually doesn't have much impact on the brain, even though, you know, it is FDA approved for this rare form of epilepsy. And even though a lot of people swear by it, the controlled studies suggest it's really no different from placebo or a sugar pill. On the other hand, placebos are powerful. Even when people know they're taking a placebo, if they were told that it helped other people, they will have benefit from it, even when they know it's a placebo. So I guess what you're, what you're asking in a way is something like, if you believe that what you're doing releases dopamine, you know, is that the same thing as releasing dopamine? And I, don't, I don't know the answer to that question. That was what I was wondering. <laughs> Going back to the solution here, I feel like there's two big camps that are here. And one of them you talk about at length in the book. So something like complete abstinence. So like AA for Alcohols Anonymous, for example, compared to a camp of more, you know, moderation 
how do you feel about those two different approaches? And is it that some people just really do require complete abstinence forever? Can some people moderate? Like what does the recovery pathway look like, especially in regards to abstinence? Whether your goal is abstinence or your goal is moderation, the place to start is a period of abstinence long enough to allow those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance so that baseline homeostasis can be restored. So when patients come in to me and they say, you know, ultimately I'd like to use this substance or behavior like quote unquote normal people, I say, okay, I can help you with that. I can try to help you with that. But, but first you have to abstain for 30 days because otherwise you're not going to reset reward pathways. It is much harder to, going, to go from using a lot to using in moderation than it is to go from using a lot to using none to going into moderation. So it always begins with this period of abstinence. And again, I argue that the neuroscience supports that path. Then, you know, in terms of, you know, after that month of abstinence and resetting reward pathways, you know, who should continue to abstain and who who can use in moderation, I don't even have the ability to predict that, right? You might think based on past experience, you know, that I could predict that, but but I've really given up trying to make those types of predictions. And I just really try to help patients do the experiments to figure out for themselves. What I what I can tell you is that if if you're going to try moderation, then it's very important to be very specific about what the goal of moderation is. We have data for alcohol, but we don't really have data for anything else. So it just comes down to, well, what what sounds like moderation to you? Moderation usually means not daily use. It usually means not binge use. And people are pretty good at sort of like thinking about, okay, well, I think I want to, you know, smoke this many days, you know, in a week or a month under these conditions uh, with this type of substance or play this many video games under these conditions with this type of video game or whatever it is. And I talk a lot in the book about various self-binding strategies because I think it's an important point when we're talking about abstinence versus moderation that there are frankly certain drugs that it's impossible to abstain from. If you're addicted to food, you can't just stop eating. If you're addicted to digital devices, for most people, their work requires them to be on devices to be able to do their jobs. So then the discussion of of moderation becomes a universal one where we then all need to think about, okay, how, how can I, you know, manage my consumption of this thing that I essentially must consume in the modern world or for my survival? I love the section on categorical self-binding. I've thought about this a lot, especially being the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I really think the reason that intermittent fasting works so well for people, especially after reading your book, is because it's categorical self-binding. You have your eating window, and so you really can only eat during your eating window, and so it solves or it addresses all the issues of overconsuming all day. Right, and I, but I think you mean chronological self-binding as categorical. Because I was a ca- oh yeah, categorical was like going gluten free. Yes, that's right. That's right. Like paleo or something. Right. So yeah. So what were the different ones? Yeah. So, so it's sort of physical self-binding or what I call geographical, which are literal barriers in space. There are chronological self-binding, which is using time as a construct. And then there are these categorical ones where you say, well, I'm going to do this type of food, but not that type of food. But I absolutely agree with you. The intermittent fasting is a really great example of chronological 
self-binding and how by just I'm putting up these guardrails of saying, I am going to eat during these times and not during these other times. It's just sort of releases you, you know, you don't, you don't then perseverate in those times of not eating. You're just like, nope, this is my not eating time. And then in the eating time, you're like, yeah, you know, I can pretty much eat whatever I want because this is my eating time. And, and I think for some people that works just really, really well and works much better than saying, well, I'm going to have, um, I'm not going to have cakes and cookies, you know, but I can eat at any time. I think the other reason that it, it works really nicely is because as we approach the end of our day, we also tend to exhaust our willpower. And so if we haven't put a hard stop on the time that we are going to, you know, stop eating, it can be harder and harder to stop as we, you know, sort of want to reward ourselves at the end of the day. Whereas we we say to ourselves, you know what, come whatever, 5 p.m., 7 p.m., 9 p.m., I can't eat past that. Then it's like, oh, there it is. It's like Cinderella and her pumpkin, you know, no, no more carriage. It's a pumpkin. I have found the intrachronological binding to be super helpful with food as well. Yeah. People will often say to me that they can never do intermittent fasting because it requires too much willpower. And my response is it's the answer to not having willpower because you don't have to make all those decisions all day. You just have your system. Right. And the other thing I think with the intermittent fasting is that we, we actually wake up with more willpower than, than we're going to have through the rest of the day. So if you're going to exercise your willpower, it, it is, I think, in the morning easier to do that at the end of the day, you know, you can make sure that you have a, a time when you're eating then, but that also has a cutoff point. And then one other last thing that you talk about that was so, so interesting to me was the role of shame and guilt in recovery and this concept of pro-social shame. I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about that. What is the role of engaging with other people when we're trying to address these addictions? Yeah. So I think it's important to acknowledge that one of the things that actually can perpetuate addiction is shame, feeling shameful about that behavior and then hiding it from others and then using more of of our addictive substance in order to sort of just deal with the increased shame and then terrible, vicious loop. But it's also very true that shame can be leveraged in a positive way to help launch us into better and more healthy behaviors. And Alcoholics Anonymous is a really good example uh, of, you know, a mutual help group that is both de-shaming in the sense that people realize they're not alone and they're accepted for who they are and their behavior is one that other people understand and share. But at the same time, pro-social shame is leveraged in the sense that, you know, then you're engaging in this activity of changing your behavior and working the program with other people. And then there's this desire to not use because it would be, you know, shameful to have to go back and say, you know, I relapsed. And so you're, you know, you want to get your 30 day chip, your 60 day chip, your 90 day chip. You don't want to have to go and tell your sponsor, oh, you know, I drank again. But importantly, if you do, you know, use again and, and you are honest about it, you will be warm heartedly accepted into the fold you won't be shunned for that behavior. So that's really important about pro-social shame. I mean, shame is one of our most social emotions, right? It's the fear of abandonment when we admit to the shameful behavior that both motivates us to keep the, the behavior hidden, which perpetuates it, but also strongly motivates us not to repeat that behavior because we don't want to have the experience of shame that is so painful to endure. 
you also talk about the role of radical honesty and the narrative that we tell about our addictions and um, also a really cool section on on just lying. With your patients, what role does honesty about their addictions play? And do you think most people are honest about their addictions or is that possibly one of the biggest hurdling blocks to tackling one's addiction? Well, whether whether you have addiction or not, we're, we're all natural liars. I think on average, we tell one to two little white lies per day, unless we're really working hard not to do that. And one of the recurring themes that I've seen in my work with patients with severe addiction is that it is almost impossible to get into recovery without practicing radical honesty. Another way of saying that is that truth-telling is fundamental to recovery. And I've heard that whether people get into recovery through AA, which makes, you know, honesty one of their most important philosophical doctrines, or they get into recovery on their own or by other means, almost everybody in recovery discovers that they need to be radically honest, not just about their drug use and their addiction, but really about everything. And that that became sort of a source of fascination to me and one that then I tried to incorporate into my own life. You know, can I go through a whole day and not lie about anything? And and the lies that we we tell, all of us, tend to be those those lies that cover up, you know, things that uh, small acts of selfishness or things we're embarrassed about, uh, you know, things that we think would make us look a little bit better in somebody else's eyes. They seem really inconsequential, but but I believe, I've come to believe through my patients that they actually are highly consequential and that fundamental to managing our own compulsive overconsumption in this reward-weary world that we live in is and begins with radical truth-telling. So actually setting up a kind of a little watchdog organization in our own minds where we're monitoring uh, whether or not we're telling the truth. And, and I try to practice that as do my patients. And I think it's, I talk about all the myriad ways why I think it's, it's an ingredient for a life well-lived but even, you know, even I practicing it every once in a while now, I find myself kind of, oh, that really, you know, that wasn't entirely true, was it? Like, I, you know, it really was, it really was two hours, whatever the detail, but I said it was four, you know, it's just so funny when you start observing yourself and going, oh, gee, that's so weird. Like, why did I, like, who cares? Only I care about that. But anyway, it's a, it's another very fascinating exercise that I recommend, and I do prescribe it to my patients too, as they're trying to quit their drug of choice. I say, the other thing you have to do this month is to not tell a lie about anything because it's fundamental to your ability to manage that reflexive pleasure pain balance. I love that so much. One of the things that I'm actually most grateful for from my upbringing is, um, I should ask my mom about this. I, I don't know why, but her one thing for us that was like the worst was no lying. Like it was just made so clear that like you do not lie. That stuck with me. Yeah, that's great. Well, give your give your mama, you know, a big pat on the back. I was actually raised in a family where there was a lot of lies and so it it took me well into midlife to frankly to even realize on some level that I was lying as much as I was in small ways and then, you know, quite a bit longer to try to get a hold on it. I, I'm very fortunate that I married a, a man who you know, lies less than average, I would say. And he really also helped open my eyes to that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lemke. This has been absolutely incredible. I, I really cannot recommend not only your book enough, I just want to thank you for everything that you're doing because it's 
really, truly life-changing. So listeners will have to get your book. And um, I will say just as a complete tangent, now I feel like they need to reevaluate a lot of the studies they've done on rats on the running wheel because you talked about how they're actually potentially addicted to running. Oh, yeah. So that was fascinating that I, I learned that through the process of writing the book that science, neuroscientists used to believe that the running wheel was inert and just a way to measure you know, physical activity of rodents in captivity. But then they discovered that running wheels are actually a drug and that some some animals will run themselves to death. They like it so much. And even animals in the wild will engage uh, in a running wheel uh, in preference to their many natural rewards, which I think just speaks volumes to all the way that all the ways in which we've now drugified exercise. But that that's that's for another day, maybe. It's so, so incredible. It just makes you wonder, I don't know when they figured that out, but it makes you wonder what other things might be going on as like just go-to protocols and experiments that might actually have completely different implications. So fascinating. So thank you so, so much. The last question I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh my gosh, I'm grateful for so much, but I probably at the top of the list is my family and my patients and my students. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Limke. We'll put links to all of your websites and your books in the show notes, and hopefully you can come back again in the future. This was absolutely amazing. Yeah. Nice conversation for me too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.